Welcome everyone. I'm Alistair Walcott, co-host of the RevOps podcast with myself and Howard Brown. Now we've been making lots of changes here in terms of our structure and what we're doing. And going forward, we're going to have a series of leaders and different people coming in to help us really discuss the, the momentous changes happening in the market right now. You know, we'll be talking to some of the top leaders around the world around the critical insights, some of the technologies, the strategies, and the psychology of revenue science, which is core to myself, core to Howard Brown. Now, for today, I'm really excited to introduce a personal friend of mine who I've known actually longer than my wife I've been married to for 17 years. I've known Andrew now for over 20 years, Andrew Bentley. Wonderful person, wonderful thought leader, and just a real practitioner in the world of sales. You know, and Andrew, I don't want to date you too much here, but uh, you started your career selling when at Microsoft, when people didn't know who Microsoft was. You actually had to explain the value proposition of Microsoft. And then you know, you've worked at Big Blue with IBM. You went on to you know, Jim Goodnight and the world of SaaS and advanced analytics and that whole trend of what took off. You ventured into Longview and the world of services and you're really living the consultant's life. And then, you know, more recently, cloud and AWS and Amazon and everything there. And now today you're, you know, you're living the life. I think you're out in uh, Victoria today, if I'm not uh, mistaken, and certainly got the boat behind you to prove it. Um, but just thrilled to have you here. Pick your brain. Um, and it's just great to chat with you again. So Welcome. Thanks, Alistair. Great to be a part of the uh, the podcast and and to share some insights. And you know, I think when two people get together, there's opportunity for both uh, transmission and receipt. So I'm looking to learn as well as being a part of this conversation. I hope so too. Look, it is now middle of June. We just came out of uh, you know the the Feds have announced interest rate increases, the highest rate increase in forty years. And today, I want to venture into you know, what is the pending R word hanging out there: recession potential, and what that means to sell in what are you know compressing markets. Right? This is a little bit different. You have to appreciate that today, for a lot of salespeople, they've lived a decade now of just Growth, 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 growth. You can see it, it, that's been the whole thing, right? And we're suddenly quickly capitulating to a, a new environment where we have big economic drivers. And this is a little bit different than the pandemic because the pandemic, yes, that was another big event, but that was something that is, wasn't purely economic driven and, and did a big upheaval. But this is kind of one of those big events again. So today, I know, you know you've lived through many of these cycles and sold through many of these cycles. Let's talk about you know, how, do you, how do we sell in a down market? Yeah, well, I, I think you know, the operative word in that sentence is really sell, right? Is that because we have been beneficiaries of an incredibly increasing marketplace, we may have left some of our selling skills behind. We may have left some of the rigor, some of the discipline. And so... You know, just that word selling is provocative enough to really start a conversation about what does that intentionality look like? When we think about selling, what is the intentionality that in a down market we need to think about bringing? What are the processes we need to think about bringing? Uh, who are the people, the participants? There's just so much there. But I really want us to just stop for a second and think about, you know, selling means intentionality. 
And how do we think about that intentionality is going to be super important to professional salespeople who are trying to sell in this down market or recession, as we might call it. Yeah, I, I agree. And I will, you know, I have to reminisce here for those of you that follow me online, you know, I came out of the world of Gartner, right? So I'm going to just go a little bit analyst mode here for a second. And um, when you think of what you just said, I agree completely. And compared to a decade ago to today, the buyer side has changed pretty fundamentally too. So for instance, you know, when you go look at buyer data right now, 43% of all buyers say, you know what, given the choice, I don't even want to work with a sales rep, right? Nearly half. That jumps to over 54% when we get to millennials. And then, you know, so you go, well, is, the, is all of this issue then, how are we going to solve that if it's, if it's not with salespeople? Is it all digital? And yet... Here's the dichotomy of that request from buyers. When they buy, and they buy with much more digital assets, much more digital dependency, and less usage of a professional salesperson, their post-purchase regret increases as much as 28%. So, so we're sitting there going, wow, they, they would like this, and they want to have these conversations, and they're turning to all these assets which the easy answer in a down market is, well, just change your messaging to be how you help do cost optimization, do all of that kind of stuff. But it isn't that simple. It is going to come back to the sales conversation being purposeful, helpful, guidance-based in the moment that matters, right? It's going to have to be that because otherwise you're going to have purchase regret. And that is a, that's a big issue among sales. Yeah, absolutely. Um... 100% agree with that. And that intentionality is how we think about setting up the process of selling. So that engagement that we need to drive with our customers, those conversations that we need to have with them, we need to understand where they are. And if you think about a recession, you can sort of think of it in terms of a matrix. There are those industries that are recession proof. There are those that are going to be recession sensitive there's going to be those that are depressed and then there's going to be those that are literally going to have an NDE, a near-death experience, right? And so understanding in that verticalization of those industries, where are they in that matrix? Because those that, that are recession-proof and the way they think about how they're going to make purchases is very different than those that are experiencing a, an NDE. And so even getting that to begin with is really important for salespeople as they begin the process. So, so I'm a sales rep. You're coaching me. How do I deal with that? Like yeah, that, that very scenario, how do I even know where my customers sit in, in that landscape you just laid out? Yeah, I mean, I, there's, there's lots of places to get the information, but I think even there's a sense of intuition that I think all of us could bring. So if you think about, you know, those organizations or those verticals that are recession-proof, um, security might be one. National security is an area where, you know, that's recession-proof. Um, Government programs that are stimulus-oriented programs, those in some ways are recession-proof because they're in fact built in order to be a catalyst for um, actually creating economic benefit. Um, and then as you go down the chain and you think about those that are going to be recession-sensitive, well, that might be hospitality or you might move hospitality all the way down to recession uh, or depressed. And so thinking about that and having that sense is really important. And you can see that in terms of looking at the financials of these organizations. Where are they? You can look at, looking at their um, annual reports and understand where are they making their bets? 
What are the things that they're worried about? Where's the risks being highlighted within the business? And that information in, uh, in those financial reports will give you probably everything you need to think about categorizing them. But once you categorize them in terms of whether they're recession resistant or whether they're in a depressed state, then you got to think about what their needs are. They're going to have essential needs. They're going to have nice to have needs. They're going to have postponable needs. And then they're going to have things that are just pure luxuries. And so, again, you're thinking about building out a matrix in terms of where do they fit in terms of that, that potential pressure, financial pressure, and then where does our product fit and where are their business requirements relative to whether it's essential, non-essential, whether it's postponable or whether it's just a luxury for the business. Yeah, so when I think about that and I think about you know, how would I solve that problem you know, at scale, right? Like right, a thousand sellers I was trying to do. I, I would certainly, you know, from a RevOps perspective, be really leaning on my marketing department to do, you know, very much the, you know, the one-to-one, maybe one-to-many ABM account-based marketing style initiatives, layering in the approach you just said, right? So now I'm actually building out the bespoke customer approach based upon the financial requirements that we are seeing in the recession, and then building a demand gen program around that. Then train the SDRs, getting the guided selling components that line up to each of those verticals. So we're not just taking one message to market, essentially. We're taking messages that is tailored about optimizing the business based upon the circumstances. This is very different. If I'm a near-death experience, I love that, an NDE. I'm going to write that one down. An NDE company versus one where I'm going, hey, I'm, I'm a you know, federal client with fixed contracts in. Clearly, you know, there's going to be a different dialogue there. And I think intuitively we know that. But as sales leaders, we often just put the pressure on salespeople to go, well, you figure it out and, and, and you know, do it on the fly. And they're left going, well, you know what? I, I, I'm going to resort back to telling people about the product because that's what they instinctively being trained on and enabled around. So it's really going to be you know, beholden upon marketing, SDR alignment, and then enablement of the steps with guided selling tools that are really going to help them understand that situational awareness of the right message from a near-death experience client all the way through the spectrum that you laid out. And I think for the audience thinking how Andrew said of, you know, these client verticals, not just a vertical, but how that vertical maps out to the stratification you said, I think is, is a great piece of advice. So let's talk next. We know who. Now let's talk about how do I engage? How do I get you you know, a, a, an executive at a company to actually want to engage with me in a, in a down market. Yeah. In a, so in a specific, in a down market, um, I think you've got to, you've got to think about what they, what they need as an organization. So there, every company that is going to continue to exist into the future has essential needs. They have business outcomes that they need to drive to. And as you understand those by, again, going through all the mechanisms that you just talked about, then you begin to engage with them based upon whether what you believe you have as a value proposition addresses an essential requirement that they have, a nice to have requirement, a postponable requirement, or a luxury. And then based upon that, you have to make adjustments in order the way that you address them. You know, there's fundamentals that I think we all understand as, as salespeople, which is, you know, I have to have business relationships. I have to get to the executives. I gotta understand how they make money. 
Um, I've got to frame my language and the way we think about our products in a way that makes sense to them, that brings value to their organizations. And so, again, you've got to categorize all that to understand specifically what you need to do. And in, and in different scenarios, you know, if you think about organizations that might be recession sensitive, how you approach them and, and how systematic you are um, versus a company that's essential. Maybe you're going straight to the executive for the essential. Maybe you're being more systematic with another. If you're dealing with organizations that are down in the NDE space or even in the depressed space, you know, you really need to think about qualification. Do we need to get to executives? Of course we do. Do we need to understand what their business is? Yes, of course we do. But the thing that should be in the forefront of your mind, I think, for those companies that are further down in that spectrum is qualification, qualification, qualification. You got to get really good at being able to qualify. Is there, in fact, a real opportunity here? And get really good at cutting bait if, in fact, there's not. And you got to do that quickly. That's a very different approach than what you would take with an organization that is recession proof in your selling something that's essential to them. Yeah, and I think you're hitting on such a key thing there, Andrew, the idea that it's continuous qualification. Because I think a lot of us fall ill to bent, right? The proverbial, oh, I have a budget, approval, need, timing, all of those things. I, I spoke to my key buyer and it sounds like it all lines up. And, you know, and I can't stress enough that bent is one of the worst qualification mechanisms that people can use today. It is about engagement. It is about continuous qualification throughout the deal and then relentless prioritization. Um, you know, we, we just can't use BANT anymore. BANT is, is a dead model that doesn't, doesn't effectively work in today's buying world. And to that, I'd add, you know, there's a quantity component to that as well. Is that I think, you know, salespeople, they, they find the person uh, that they think is going to get them across the finish line. And I think we know, and, and you could speak way better to this than I could in terms of the data, but, you know, most opportunities, there's six to nine stakeholders in every opportunity. And for the average salesperson, they're getting to maybe two of them. Uh, in the best days, they're getting to three. And so the question is, how do you make sure you have broader conversations within that account to all of the stakeholders and you're able to matrix all the benefits of what it is that you provide as a, as a value, as a service, as a product to all of the stakeholders? Because you gave me the, the license to do it. I, I will get the data on it. it. You're right. It is deals below $1 million, in B2B sales, deals below $1 million dollars. Um, it's on average buying groups of about seven people. You get above a million, it, it gets to about 13. And you're absolutely spot on, Andrew. Average engagement is two, maybe three people in average reps engagement. So you got to ask yourself, how can I scale and how do I know when and how to reach out to those buyers? Because, you know, it may be if, if I'm solely relying upon Andrew getting on a Zoom call with you, getting on a WebEx call as my means of selling to you, you eventually are going to be tired of that. It is understanding how I'm texting with you, calling with you, engaging with you, all of those omni-channel pieces. And then how do I give you the information to help your organization buy? Not sell you on me. There has to be, I think this is such a key thing to know. It's, it's, it's that pivotal turn of I'm no longer selling to you. I'm simply helping you buy. Because I may sell every day, but you, you as an organization largely don't buy every day. And so, you know, and that becomes even more pronounced in down markets because buyers become more conservative, 
right? Budgets tend to get ratcheted down. It's easier than to say, no, don't do something. So if I'm not giving you an easy, frictionless way to buy and supporting you by extension of the rest of the buying group, I'm gonna have a real problem on my hands, right? When you think of uh, another key thing for me, Andrew, is you know the shortness here that's needed in times of economic duress, right? So we've stratified accounts, as you said. We built custom messaging, as you said. We've thought through now the engagement model of multiple buyers. Time to value. Time to value, I think, is a really important thing to to think of here, um, and just. You know, for you, for the audience listening in here, under normal circumstances, under times of high growth, the good times, so to speak, you can generally get away with you know a time to value equation of you know nine to eighteen months on average, right? So I buy a product as a company in about nine to eighteen months. I'm looking for it really to drive the effectiveness of what you sold me on, right? What is very consistent is whenever we get into these cycles where there's duress on the buy side, like that number jumps down to as much as 30 to 90 days. So now you think of your solution, you think of what you're doing, like that, that again, the situational awareness to understand how I'm talking to value in very truncated terms, you know, that's, that's so important. And Andrew, you've sold through all kinds of different products, as we said at the beginning, right? From analytics to cloud to services to hardware to software, all of it. I, what's your experience in that? Like, have you have you seen that kind of manifest through? Any any thoughts and tips for people on how to handle that for an average rep? Sure, absolutely. So, you know that the compression is no doubt happening, um, and the great uh, salespeople are moving that. Uh, calculation of value, if you will, earlier into the sales cycle. So you kind of think about, you know, there's the old buying cycle. Uh, but another way to think about it is, you know, you create value, you calculate value, you ultimately um, help them understand the value or capture the value. And then at the end of it all, you, you add more value to it at the end of it. But this idea of calculating the value, and again, in a very intentional way. So whether it's proof of concepts, proof of value, um, third-party validation, um, all of these tools that we're beginning to use, value calculations, we're getting them into the sales cycle and we're getting them into the sales cycle in a very intentional way. And we're introducing them at the right time within the sales cycle. You know, there is a heuristic in terms of the way the brain likes to receive information, right? And so, at the beginning of a sales cycle, when you're very much in the needs stage of that sales cycle, and you're thinking, you know, what is it that I need? That's the opportunity when you're creating value. So what is the problem that I'm trying to solve for? What is the benefit? What vendors have solutions? That's, that's sort of the value creation sort of end of that. But quickly you move into this idea as they, as they, they, they understand what their needs are, you got to start helping them calculate the value and understanding what are the artifacts, what are the capabilities, what tools do you have to be able to help them to calculate the value? Because that time to value equation, they don't wanna see it in 18 months. They wanna know before they make the decision that they are absolutely unequivocally gonna receive value. And they want it quantified in a way that is interesting 
and sufficient for their business. So if it's an internal rate of return calculation that they do, do you understand what that number is? And are you bringing that to bear in terms of those tools that you're bringing to bear around calculating what the value is? You, you bring up a really good point here on IRR. Um, and, I, and I want everybody to catch this, the internal rate of return. Because what Andrew did there was that, that's such a critical insight. A lot of people, when they think of value calculation, what's the first thing most vendors prevent, present? TCO, total cost of ownership, right? Now, total cost of ownership is a certainly a very good financial mechanism. I'm not here to debate that from a finance perspective. However, I would caution everyone that when you look at uh, buyer trust in vendor calculation and proof of value, TCO is the least trusted number because it is, it is often one that is flippantly calculated. It is using a lot of assumptions in most cases, and it's used very on in a, in a sales cycle. Andrew, I'm so glad you connected with me today. Our service is going to save you in a recession 50% more than anyone else. Or through our TCO, I will guarantee you X amount of savings, right? Da, 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 da. Like they, they, they come across as used car salesman statements is what they do. And, and it's under this guise of a, of a financial analysis. So you know, I want people to know when Andrew says IRR, IRR is actually ranked as one of the highest trusted numbers. Why? It takes a little bit more effort to figure it out. It also isn't simply a number that you can just magically create, create out of a form field on a website, right? Like it's, it's going to take you some selling work and acumen to figure that out. Um, along with MPV is another one. That present value of a solution is another big one. And I would just say to the audience, you really think through, as Andrew said, when and how we are using these financial tools to support the buyer. In my experience, Andrew, you know, I would say you kind of want a, a relatively broad but believable number near the front end of your sales cycle, like early stage there. We want that in the guidance to our reps of, hey, are you having this conversation? If you're not having this conversation early on, that's a qualification issue. And then work with the client to actually build that out, not just for your solution, but for their problem. So whether they buy from you or not, you're still giving them the same support to figure out their internal rate of return, right? Like that's how you get a buyer to go, I'm going to listen. I'm going to work with you on solving this problem. And now we're stratifying that across our sales stages. So it's hard. That's hard for a seller. I think that's very difficult uh, to do. But, it's, but it's absolutely hard work. But as a salesperson, like if, if you're bringing value to your customers, you've read their 10K and you, and you read it often like you you understand it you look at the mdna documents you understand where's the risk where are they calling out risk in their organization and you're trying to align your value proposition associated with that analysis because that management discussion analysis piece it, it calls out all sorts of really interesting things that you can use in a way that helps them buy not in a way that helps you sell but in a way that helps them buy and you become a stakeholder in their business and i you know, I've, I've made a point of, and, and you know, I don't know if, if, this, if this is cheesy or what, what you would think of it, but I literally try to buy the stock of the companies I'm, I'm doing business with. Now, you don't have to take huge positions in them. I mean, in fact, my, a position that I would take in any company is by no means even material. 
But the idea of just the fact that I've made a conscious effort to buy 100 shares or 500, whatever the number is, to actually buy shares in that company so that I start getting documentation from them. So I, I'm curious enough to go and see how is their performance. I'm listening to the analyst calls. I'm reading the documentation. And it really puts you, I think, as a stakeholder, as part of what you're trying to solve for. And then the last thing I would say about that is, can you provide a solid commentary on how that company makes money. You know, we talk about this idea of being able to calculate value and we throw around numbers, but if we're just doing it academically, it doesn't hold the same amount of power. Um, you wanna be able to actually truly understand their business. How do they make money? If it's an oil and gas company, how do they get molecules out of the ground and how do those molecules get to market? That's part of truly building that calculation because you understand it more than just academically. Uh, I agree with you. The only thing I would uh, argue with is I'm even cheaper than you are. And that's saying something. Um, so I might buy options because they're going to be one tenth of the stock price. So, you know, it's just a, just, just something I might do there. Pro so, tip right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I love this. Let's, you know, and I know we're going to run out of time and maybe we'll do some more sessions here as well, but the, I want to take this up to like really the most basic of human levels as well. Okay. Um, selling is all about a series of moments. It has to be about that. You and I are having a moment right now. We're having a conversation. We're entering into that. Things led to this conversation. Life in general is filled with these moments. But they're fleeting for sales reps. As I said at the outset, right? The amount of time buyers are now spending is down to 17% of a sales cycle with reps, they're desiring seller-free models, like that the importance of being on and right in the moment of conversation is so critical. And I would, I would suggest in these times of economic duress, it's very easy for buyers to give way more flippant answers to why not to engage. Look, budgets are frozen right now. I'm, 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 I'm busy, we're just not buying. I got the incumbent things, we're not changing, right? Like the, all of the classic roadblocks just get amplified even more to the poor old sales rep as we're in a, you know, times of economic duress. You know, again, you've, you've run and helped hundreds, maybe thousands at this point of, of reps around the world, Andrew, through, through three decades of doing this. How do you help them have better moments? Like, how do you just help a rep have a better conversation? Yeah, I think for me, I've, I've always said to salespeople, and when I've done sales interviews, they've always said, well, what's your sales methodology? Is it QBS, question-based selling? Is it uh, executive selling? Is it spin, you know, challenger model? Everybody, everybody wants to know what your sales methodology is. And I say, you know, quite honestly, the, the simple answer is my sales methodology is to have better conversations with the people that I'm potentially selling to than my competitors. And to have a better conversation, you know, they... I think it was uh, Jim Collins who said that his professor once said to him, he said, Mr. Collins, you would do well to show up less interesting and to show up more interested. And I think the, the way I have translated that into the, the sort of the, the guidance I give to salespeople is smart, curious questions. You know, this, this idea of, you know, what keeps you up at night or this idea of throwing things at the wall and hoping something sticks, that's not an engaging conversation. But when somebody shows up and I start to have a question and conversation with them that's smart and that's curious, all of a sudden there's a level of engagement. 
And so I think that's the first thing I would say is, is to understand what smart, curious questions look like and be able to host a conversation in a way that provides that capability. And then the second thing I would say is, and this only depends if you have low volume of, of uh, accounts. If you have a, a tremendous amount of accounts, this is much more challenging. But try to provide value to your customers out of cycle. And what I mean by that is, you know, before there's an opportunity, are you somehow trying to connect with these people? Are you trying to bring value to their life in a way, in their business, in a way that they actually recognize it's coming from you? Not in cycle, not when there's a PO, not when there's an RFP, not when there's something at stake, but this ability to build friendships and to build curiosity with these organizations and with these people out of cycle. I love those things. And you know, to contextualize that, I'd say to the RevOps specific world, you're really talking about not just guided selling experience, you're talking about the totality of end-to-end revenue production. Because what makes a company ultimately buy from another company is there is empathy. There is an empathy isn't sympathy. Empathy is the understanding of your situation and helping in that situation. It is being curious to understand that, to use your words. And then where does a lot of that information actually sit? Because actually what you just said sits in companies. Have you gone and got that information from your customer success teams that have actually dealt with that customer all the way since you sold them last and actually done a knowledge extraction there to figure out well, what would be the right moment and the right conversations to actually help them in a meaningful, constructive way? And by the way, you know, if you don't know, why not ask your sponsors, ask your buyers, say, look, I, I don't know these things. Andrew, could you help me? I actually think it's one of the most powerful techniques people can use in sales is literally sit down with customers and say, I don't know enough about these things in your business. Could you help me understand? Most people love to talk about what they do for a living. Let them help you through that in, in a guidance way. And I think, uh, you know, we just have so much better conversations. So pull the data from post-sale, use it on the front of sale, automate that. That's always, you know, that's key. But even with all of that said, we have to have just just good conversations. We got to arm people with support in those moments of conversation. All right, so Andrew, you were a really good point, right? So we've segmented the market. We've understood you know the stratification of what's there. We know we need to enable reps through all these different channels. We we you know we know we need the content there. But let's just be honest about sometimes what we actually sell. For a lot of companies, the products and services they have fall into the nice-to-have category. Now, some are premium, some are essential, but a lot of what is sold, especially out there right now, it's, it is in a nice-to-have category. Now, in a down market, recessionary market, how do I take my nice-to-have product and make it an essential purchase for a buyer? What have you done there? Yeah, it's a great question because that that is the challenge, right? Is, you know, what are the actions or what is the selling posture that I would assume in that that scenario? And I think in a market that is a nice to have product, uh, it has absolutely intrinsic value to the organization. There's no question about that. It has intrinsic value, but it's still in the nice to have category. And in a recession sensitive environment, you know, how do I begin to have a sales uh, motion within that company? And I think we have to think about 
um, iterative sales. And so whether we think about POCs, proof of concepts, whether we think about assessments, whether we think about MVPs, um, Amazon AWS does something that they call uh, working backwards exercises, which is this idea to say, let's cast a vision into the future and imagine you know, two years from now, what could be realized with a solution. We build back with an FAQ, a frequently asked questions. We do a press release and we really start to build out that vision. The, the whole point of that is to create some iteration around the sales process. It's not a binary, will you buy it, will you not buy it? but I'm beginning to engage you around some more value creation for the solution that I'm building. Uh, the second piece to that, I think, is you have to think about um, having relationships within the business. Is that again, there's nine to 13 stakeholders. Um, all of them have a say, all of them have a lens on the business. You've got to ask yourself is, do I have relationships that are, that are significant, sustainable, meaningful with people that actually are the stakeholders of the business? meaning they have a say in what the business decision is, not the technology decision, but the business decision. And so those two things about how do I sell more iteratively into the organization and do I have sufficient business relationships with the people in the business, not simply in the discipline that I'm selling to. And I'd be curious in your thoughts here, when you think of, because you're talking about pulling value from tomorrow forwards to today, Right, where we're actually essentially bringing that forward and demonstrating what it does to companies. But one thing we learned really well that worked coming out of COVID, and when that when that first happened, right, where everybody was suddenly like, "My goodness, lock everything down," was you got no idea what's going to happen next, like in a month from now. What companies did well in that time of quick duress um, that sold well was they said, "All right, look, there's an economic reality that is front and center." And that is probably one of optimization, right? Like it's, it's going to be a leading conversation right now. The classic OPEX versus CAPEX. You know, how do I just drive right value right now? We spoke a speed to value earlier, but just economics of the reality that I'm in in this moment. But what the breakout companies did well was they then helped those customers go, okay, look, I'll optimize and help you right now, but... I'm bringing forwards value that's going to allow you to now come out of this thing and accelerate your peer group. I'm going to help you future-proof your organization for where you're going to need to be in Q2 of 2023, right? So this is this is very idea, I think, of what you're talking about, of bringing forwards the vision from Q2 2023, but, but wrap it around this nearness of, hey, I can make a result now, but I'm, I'm now also setting you the stage to bring that forwards in terms of giving you the competitive edge. And I think that's, again, going back to the situational awareness of the buyer, understanding the behaviors, understanding who to engage with, and then supporting them through that buy process, right? Supporting them in the moments that matter when they buy, correlating around the business situation that they are in, in that moment. That's exactly it. And, and you're, you're playing very well into the, you know, we're creating value, we calculate the value, we capture the value, and then we expand the value, and we're doing some of that expansion. There's, we're essentially telegraphing what that expanded value can look like into the future, which is super sticky for organizations. I love it. I mean, it's a great piece of advice there. All right, Andrew, I, you know, I got to also address the classic elephant in the room here. When we talk, you know, we spoke about calculators, you talked about MPV, IRR, and all of that. 
CapEx, OpEx. It's a big deal in times of recession, right? A lot of people go, well, I need to, I need to categorize what I buy in certain buckets. And it often is, is, is a conundrum for a lot of companies out there. So what do you think? CapEx, OpEx, selling in a down market, how do I deal with it? Well, I, the first way you deal with it is you, you, you have to know the organization that you're selling to is what matters to them. And you can't make the assumption that it's an oil and gas company and all they care about is CapEx or it's a highly regulated organization. Therefore, it's all CapEx. We want to buy more assets so we can increase the, the, uh, the rate. That, that, that old way of thinking is exactly that. It's old. And so first off, you got to understand what does the organization care about? But then you got to think about, you know, there are, there are mechanisms, there's, there's creativity that you can use. And, and I think about a good example is the cloud being probably the best example of all, is that when you think about cloud consumption, traditionally it would be consumed as OPEX, right? It's an operational expense. Everybody recognizes it for that. Right. But in fact, based on IFRS, you know, there is a litmus test for what actually defines an asset that can be capitalized. And so in the cloud scenario, you could have consumption that is actually capitalized. And how do you do that? Well, um, sort of the litmus test is threefold. Number one is it is, a, is it a discrete asset? Meaning, you know, is it serialized? Is it, can I point to it? Can I say that's mine? And that's exactly what you can do. You can say that that server in that data center where my workload runs is in fact a discrete asset dedicated to my use. And so it checks that box. Um, number two, is it resellable? Well, there's something called reserved instances as an example, where in the cloud world, you can buy reserved instances and you can actually resell those cloud um, reserved instances. So therefore it's a resellable asset. And then thirdly, there's a life expectancy associated with that. And you know, three to five years or whatever it be. You can sign a contract that says, I'm gonna buy reserved instances for three to five years. They're gonna reside in this region, in this data center. Boom, all of a sudden you've now created a capital expense, which was previously an OPEX. And so the salespeople that understand exactly what the organization needs and how they need to be able to consume products and services, whether it's CapEx or OPEX, and then the ability to bring that creativity and the wherewithal. You know, I've had some great conversations where I've brought somebody from our finance team to talk directly with the CFO or the VP of finance and all of a sudden now you're having a completely different discussion than you were on a speeds and feeds basis. And you're building another route, another opportunity to build a relationship with somebody in the business. Yeah. And I think if, if I take this to the, like the, an average seller, right? You're framing up here what is going to be one of the most classic objections you often get in a down economy. Well, right now... But I don't, I don't have the budget, right? Like, I mean, screamed at, to cut, to hold, to do all of those things. Okay, what aspect of your budget? Because when most buyers say that, what they actually mean is my operational spend. That's typically what they're referencing because they often don't actually have huge amounts of capital separation on site that. But the business does. That's why selling on CapEx in down markets actually is a very interesting way to reframe. And now we're into guiding and helping the buyer to say, hey, are you even aware of IFRS and actually how I could actually help you reframe your entire operational spend into a capital spend? And by the way, in doing that, you can actually add more in. You can actually expand the deal scope and size. And, and now you're helping the buyer. You're not just using creative accounting 
you know, uh, flair to make this work, but we're leaning in to uh, your, per, your earlier point. We're being inquisitive. We're being curious around how they're thinking about that, that expense side of the business and really helping them go through this. So I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to hear you kind of give this framing of rethinking OPEX and CAPEX. You know, you and I have seen it done with software too. Right? We've done it with software, we've done it consulting services where we've been able to look at that and use these financial structures to enable people to switch to bigger CapEx modes. Likewise, there could be some very capital intensive industries that want to do the inverse of that right? in, in, in the down market. It's going to be always understanding that frame up on the buyer side of well, what's important. So just because they say no, lean in with the next question. And that's where we have to arm our reps with the guidance in that conversation. If, if you hear that, well, here's, here's how you ask the next series of questions, right? That's where coaching and all of these enabling things come into play. That's where in the moment's guidance comes into play. So as you hear it, here's the next thing, because I'm not expecting every rep out there to be an IFRS expert and a CapEx OpEx expert, but we can give them guidance in real time. And that's, that's so important to do that based upon the conversations being heard in that moment as well. Final word is yours. Um, you know, what, bring it home with your final thought on how to, how to help people sell effectively. Yeah, I think the, the last piece of the quadrant I would end with is how to expand value, right? So if you're about, you know, how do we create value? Um, how do you calculate the value? How do you capture the value? Then lastly, how do you expand the value? And I think, you know, in a down market, that's a great opportunity for organizations. If you've already got a beachhead or if you've already got a footprint in there, how do you think in terms of those concentric circles of additional value that they can that can be brought to the to the customer? You know, it, it's it's expensive proposition to go find another vendor. It's an expensive proposition to go find another product or another whatever. And so if you can think about how do you expand value within that organization, and sometimes it's not just a product and service. Sometimes it's connections that you're bringing to bear for their organization. Sometimes there's not a pure revenue opportunity in that, but it's this idea of how do I continue to expand value? Because in the down market, as you expand the value that you bring to organizations, that will serve you so well in the future as you think about your career longer term and you think about the relationship that you're hopefully building with this company for the long term. I love it, Andrew. Well, that's it for today, everyone. Andrew, thank you so much for being with us. For those of you listening in, please remember to subscribe, rate, review. And if you have the suggestions on future podcasts or questions directly for Howard, Andrew, myself, or any of the team, reach out to us. But we can't thank you enough and uh, wish you all the best on selling in a down market. Andrew, appreciate it. Thanks, Alistair.